Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek. And with us today is John Burroughs. John is a long-standing artist in the Cleveland community who is known nationally. The author of more than a dozen books, the most recent of which is Rattle and Numb, Selected in New Poems, 1992 through 2019, along with publications in countless literary magazines and anthologies, it would be safe to describe John as prolific. He is an extremely active spoken word performer, having participated in more than 100 shows dating back to 2008. He is currently the Beat Poet Laureate for the state of Ohio, maintains the Cleveland Poetics blog and Northeast Ohio literary calendar at clevelandpoetry.com, and has served as the founding editor for Crisis Chronicles Press, a press that has published over 100 poets from around the globe. John, thank you so very much for coming. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Uh, would you like to start us off with a poem? Uh, sure. Um, since this is for the Ohio Poetry Association, uh, an organization that's near and dear to my heart, I will read the poem that appeared in the most recent issue of Common Threads. I am not ready to die yet. I am not ready to go gently into Dylan's good night while wannabe Blackwater thugs crush kinfolk for cash in Portland and maybe soon Cleveland. I am not ready to die before there is justice for Sandra Bland or Brianna Taylor. I am not ready to let go while white would-be masters and their whelps, so wary of wearing masks, seem wrapped with delight at the thought of regurgitating yesterday's noose in their fight against Black lives mattering. Oh, the splattering. I am not ready to rest on my laurels, worthless as they may be, while there is work to do, and while not a word the president before says is true. Believe me, I am not ready to watch my loved ones be ground down into the Cleveland blacktop by blackguards and black shirts issued forth from Washington by a liar, cheat, and black heart in chief who believed the police force that killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice, the same Cleveland police force that shot 137 bullets into unarmed Timothy Russell and Melissa Williams, might need a little extra firepower to carry out their black work. I am not ready to die, friends unless it is by your side in the fight for fairness, for right, and for equal justice. Well, thank you, that amazing intro poem. I, I'm a little breathless. <laughs> I, I was a little rusty because I haven't been reading as much lately thanks to the, um, the pandemic. And then it occurred to me, oh, I'm talking about the president in present tense as though you know I'm talking about the president now and it was actually written during the Trump era but uh and then I which made me then think maybe I shouldn't have read that poem but I think the message is still you know an important message um oh absolutely I mean it's that era was a symptom of a deeper issue right like there's there's the foundational cracks have been there for centuries <laughs> I agree, yes. 
And and well, I, let me ask you. I mean, do you do you think that that you know poetry because you, you're you do a lot of performance pieces. Um, do you think that performance poetry is has a greater um, is is better suited toward activism because it's read out loud and because you you, you can use the power of your voice? That is an interesting concept, and uh, you know, now that you say it, you know, maybe it is. I mean, I know a lot of really great activist poets um, who are fantastic writers, but aren't necessarily known for their performance. So I wouldn't say it's a hard and fast rule, but I think you can do, or at least I feel like I can do more uh, using my voice and reading aloud. Uh, it it kind of, for me, adds a dimension to what's already on the page. I, I believe that what's on the page should be strong and stand on its own, but um, hopefully, you know, the performance can catch some other people's attention who might not sit down and read a poem, but will listen to a strong performance. Um, but I don't know. Do you, do you so I'll, with the poem? I'll keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> I think it. I think it's great. I, I, so let me ask you, like, when you read a poem like that, like it's so pointed. It's so. It, it's. I'm still. I'm still thinking about it. So when when you read a poem like that, are you more comfortable, say, with this poem? Would you be more comfortable having your audience read it on a page or hear you perform it? Do you think? Well, I think. It depends on the audience because I think some people digest better reading something on the page and some people will, will embrace something or digest, embrace better hearing it aloud. I'm, I'm kind of weird as much as, you know, uh, I perform, I am of the type, I'm more of a visual learner. So if I read a poem um, I remember it a lot better than if I hear it. I mean, I'll, when I'm listening to it, it will move me and I'll be like, wow, that was a great poem. That was a great performance. But then it will be hard for me to like repeat lines back to you after the fact. Whereas if I had read it on the page, I, I, my memory is better. So, so I'm not sure. I think it may depend on the person in the audience. Yeah, or, or even the night you read it on, just depending on what your mood is. Yeah, the venue, the, the, the context. Sure. It's, maybe it, some poems are best when you can both hear and see them at the same time. That's true. Uh, a lot of my poems do a lot of wordplay, and um, especially my, not as much my newer poems, but in the past, I used a lot more wordplay. And sometimes it was hard to convey the nuances and layers in a live performance. Uh, I would try and sometimes I would feel like, well, maybe the, the out loud reading would, felt a little too performative or too, I was trying too hard to make people get the interesting line break, you know, or get the, the pun or, and which helped maybe the live audience to grasp more what I was trying to say, but it also made the performance sound a little contrived. So it, it's kind of a fine balance. 
for me that I'm still trying to figure out. Um, yeah, sure. Um, let, let's go. Let's go back a little bit because I mean you've you've been around a very long time and you were you were active in the poetry community for decades. You know, back way back when you know amateur site makers were like pasting gifs and linking auto load music into their GeoCities and AngelFire pages. You ran one of the top blogs on MySpace. I mean, you've been at it for a long, long time. So when did you get started with poetry? And, and how did those early internet initiatives help you get involved with the community? Well, I, I started writing poetry as far back as high school um, to please an English teacher um, who thought I had, written, I had written an essay that she said was, oh, that sounds like poetry, that's poetry. Do you write other poems? And I lied and said, yes. And then to impress this teacher, I started writing poems. Um, but for many years uh, I wrote and maybe had a few things published here and there, but mostly didn't share my work with other people until around, 2007 or so when I was on MySpace and the trying to feed the blog machine constantly come up with content that would make people tune into the blog. Um, and so I started sharing a couple of my poems on the blog, which was the first time I'd really shared them publicly to a mass of people and uh, got good feedback, including from some Cleveland poets who I had never met in person, but uh, only through MySpace, who convinced me that I should come out to a poetry reading and, and read. And I was petrified of sharing my work publicly. I, I was, you know, had social anxiety. Dealing with groups of people has always been difficult for me. Um, which, uh, which is why, you know, when I go out, it, would go out to poetry readings, I would drink, you know, because uh, that was uh, a way of, you know, calming my nerves and making myself more comfortable in a social situation. Uh, and sometimes I might have did that a little too much. Um, but so I finally got up the courage and went to a poetry reading and it was hosted by Ray McNeese at the Barking Spider Tavern during the Hessler Street Fair. And I had a few beers and, you know, got my courage up and Ray knew me only from MySpace at that point and called me up to read a couple of poems. And after I read them, you know, I got really good feedback from everybody. And that, you know, kind of that, that feeling like somebody's interested in what I'm saying uh, it it kind of created a monster because then I wanted to go to every poetry reading, every open mic I could find. Um, because when I was younger, you know, growing up, uh, my school, my family, nobody was really into poetry and they thought it was kind of a silly thing that I was doing. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I thought, I felt very alone, like in high school, in my early adulthood, I felt like I was the only person doing these things, you know, and I had no idea that there were countless people doing the same things. And even nearby in my hometown of Illyria or in Cleveland, there were lots of poets and I was just totally oblivious until 
my space and meeting them and coming out to the readings. And then it, it felt like this was my other family that I had never had who understands me and who accepts me and thinks it's cool or okay to be a poet. And that really was uh, affirming for me. And, and that made me wanna get more and more involved. That's, that's astounding. I, I, I would have never, I would, because I, every time I've met you, you've always had a, a ton of confidence and obviously you're used to it now. You're, you've been involved in the community for a long time. Um, is it is it easier to read now that you've had, you know, a ton of practice, or do you still feel nerves when you're getting in front of people? It is it is easier than it used to be um, because I, I have a, a more of a comfort level and a greater confidence level. Although uh, you know, I always think I can be better, and I think everybody can be better. You know, hopefully, I want to keep evolving, but. Yeah, I think, well, so I had gotten involved in theater prior to the poetry community. And I was petrified to do that when I started, you know, in the 1990s. But I was playing different roles, different characters. So I could just get up and be extravagant, but I was, you know, a character. So no one was gonna judge me based on what I was sharing. Poetry was more personal for me. So much of my poetry is based in autobiography. I feel like, you know, there are a lot of poets who don't like to write autobiographical stuff, um, but, or use the word I, or, you know, but I have always felt like it's kind of presumptuous for me to write about somebody else or another situation that I don't know as well, you know, I, I can't do them justice. Uh, but I can write about my own experiences. And so that's kind of why my poetry has always been predominantly based on my own experiences. So that was why it was so much more personal for me and frightening to share it with an audience. And, you know, but it does, it has gotten easier. And now I don't need to, uh, you know, down the booze to do a poetry reading, but. <laughs> Your liver thanks you. That's a, yes. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Much more moderation now. <laughs> That's good. Um, well, and, and so you're, the poem you read at the beginning of this wasn't personal. I mean, it was it was a cry against an oppressive system that's oppressing a group of people that are ostensibly different than yourself. I, you know, was it was it easy to get to? I mean, well, not easy. Was what what work did you have to do to get to that point where you could move beyond the eye? Well, so it was, to me, it was still personal, but the personal part of it was a little more oblique because I didn't, you know, spell it out. Uh, my, four of my grandchildren are half African-American. And so um, the year Tamir Rice was killed by a Cleveland police officer, he was the same exact age as my, my grandson, Savon. And I thought, you know, that could have been my grandson. And, you know, for, you know, having a toy gun, which I used to play with all the time when I was a kid out in public. 
And, you know, it was never considered a big deal. You know, no neighbor or police officer or anybody looked at me at 13 playing with a, a toy gun and thought I was a threat. Sure. Tamir Rice, because he's African-American, was perceived differently. And, and you know, that could have been my grandson. So I, I had that whole thought in my head as I'm, you know, observing, it was actually, the poem was written shortly after the George Floyd murder. And I'm like, you know, this is still happening and it's gonna keep happening. And, you know, I can't speak for African-American people and I, I can only begin to, to understand how they feel. But I feel as an artist, as, as somebody that some people might listen to, I, I have a responsibility to, to, to speak out about these kinds of injustices. And maybe, you know, even though I'm known for autobiographical poetry also, uh, it's not always all about me. It's, you know, there are much more important things and, much, and people who I, I should be, you know, giving attention to with my work. Absolutely. I mean, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, it's, it's evil for a good man to do nothing. And it's, you know, it, yes, you're affected by the people that your, your, your life touches. And yes. And I, I maybe write, reading and writing a poem about it, you know, doesn't do any good to solve the problem. I don't, you know, it, it probably does very little if I'm honest, but you know, in a out of it came out of a moment of helplessness where you I feel like I want to do something I'm angry uh and it, so that came out yeah okay well th thank you thank you for sharing um <clears throat> I wanted I wanted to turn to Crisis Chronicles Press you've been running this press for a while you've published so many different books from people from all over. I, I it, it blew my mind uh, how how many authors you know writers that you've turned into authors and how many writers you've published. Um, so what made you start it? Where did that come from? You know what gave you the the, the drive and the initiative to start it and then follow through with it. Well, I must admit, at first, I did not intend to start a press. Um, I was blogging under the moniker Jesus Crisis uh, under on MySpace and then later on my own blog on Blogger. But I I wanted to create a website JesusCrisis.com, but that URL was not available, and so I created CrisisChronicles.com. So that was the name of my website already. Okay. <laughs> I got involved in the poetry community and started going to readings. I started making like little handmade chapbooks of my own poems and handing them out at readings, kind of as a calling card, you know. Duh. And as half a joke, I wrote Crisis Chronicles Press on the back of the little chapbooks I was handing out. <laughs> so uh, at some point, about a year later, I, I decided to do a similar chapbook for one of my close friends and poetry partner, Diane Borsenick. So I, I pub published the one by her. And then suddenly when people saw I was publishing somebody else's, 
they started sending me submissions and I'm like, wow, this is a poet. I really, you know, one of the earliest ones to send me a submission was Alex Gildson, who's been writing since the sixties and is a fantastic, one of my heroes in poetry. I'm like, wow, he wants me to publish his chapbook, you know? And I, I just kind of, it started happening. And suddenly I started feeling like a real press, although that wasn't my intention in the first place. And eventually I graduated from doing the hand printed and stapled chapbooks I was doing very lo-fi into um, perfect bound, you know, more glossy books. But it's really been a privilege to work with a lot of these people, um, some of whom I would have never imagined would even want to talk to me or consider me a peer because they've been around doing great things for such a long time. And to work with them and learn from them, you know, I, I feel like over the 13 years or so I've been publishing, I've become a better and better editor, a better and better publisher, uh, a better and better poet. Uh, I'm, I think I'm far more discriminating uh, than, especially with my own work, uh, than I was when I began publishing in 20, 2008. And so it's been good for me all around. It's been a lot of work and sometimes, uh, you know, a lot of expense, but uh, it's the, uh, the good things about it, the working with great people and making friends and touring and doing book fairs and stuff is really priceless and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Oh man, that, oh man, you know, and, and it, it kind of mirrors, to, to an extent that kind of mirrors how I feel about this podcast a little bit, you know, it's, it's, it's weird, you know, you, you were, you've always been like somebody that I've looked up to in part because you're the you're the first one of the first poets in Ohio that I knew about and it's really oh, I want to say it's 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 an honor to have you on the podcast it really is I, I, I feel like the honor is mine I, I'm <laughs> very grateful and I appreciate your kind words oh no pleasure's all on this side of the the, the microphone <laughs> <laughs> so uh with with these writers because I, I imagine that you must have had your perspective about writing change. I, I did some guest editing for literary magazines and, you know, coming out of that, because you have to read 60 to 200, you know, submissions and you, you know, you just, you go through these things in a month and by the end of it, you're like, well, can't handle cat poems anymore. You know, <laughs> you, get, you get past the cliche stuff. And you know, I'm just wondering what, what, what did you learn from that? You, you know, what, what did you pick up and how did that change you? Well, I, one thing it's changed is uh, when I mentioned being, becoming a better editor, at the beginning, I was very um, hands-off as an editor. Like I was kind of bashful about, you know, I would, I would read the poet's poems and say, you know, this is their poem, their voice. They chose the punctuation and stuff. And, uh, I felt like I didn't have a right to, to suggest changes or, you know, I, so I, I tried to let them be them. And I thought that was really respecting and honoring their work. Uh, but as I got more experienced, I realized that maybe I wasn't doing them any favors. You know, they, 
maybe they want more from an editor, you know? I mean, I'm still not going to, you know, stomp on and change too much where it, it's not, you know, but, but definitely make some helpful suggestions, but ultimately it's their poem, but I am much more uh, comfortable suggesting changes, asking questions. Did you really mean canon with one N or did you mean canon with, with two ends in the middle? Um, so I, I think I've, I've gotten more comfortable communicating with and being more of a collaborator with my uh, authors than I was in the first place where I was much, much more uh, afraid to assert myself. But, but I don't wanna assert myself too much as an editor. So that's, that's a balance I'm still working on. Um, doing the poet justice and, and but uh, not being too intrusive either. Yeah, I, I imagine there's, there's a lot of desire because you know poetry can be a little esoteric sometimes. So some, I, I imagine that you're like, well, these are things I noticed do you want mm -hmm. to make these changes? Are you comfortable? Like, are you comfortable with what it does to your audience, or did you do that on yeah. purpose? And is that a, is that your hard final sell? <laughs> you know? um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's really cool. Is is Crisis uh, still publishing uh, through the pandemic? Is it on a? Where's it at? Well, we we published in 2020. We only published one book in February by. Uh, Alex Gildson, uh, we published another book by him. Uh, and then he had all these events set up and they ended up having to be canceled because the pandemic struck. So that kind of made me put a lot of projects on hold. Um, we did publish one more, actually we published two books in uh, 2020. We did publish one in September by Carolyn Srigley Moore. Um, because she doesn't do a lot of events anyway. So uh, I didn't feel like it was doing her an injustice publishing the book while no events were happening. She's much more comfortable online anyway. So uh, we did publish that one. And that's the only two books we've published uh, since the uh, beginning of 2020. However, we have uh, five in the queue now that I'm working on and that by the end of the year, uh, we'll have a few of those out. Okay. It's by Seanseneth Buck, who is one of my favorite people and writers uh, who lives in Oregon now. And uh, one by Kent Taylor, who lives in San Francisco now. And but he was a member of the infamous mimeograph troupe of poets with D.A. Levy in the 1960s here in Cleveland before he moved to California. So, and another poet whose work uh, we'll be publishing soon is Christopher Frankie, who's another Cleveland legend who's uh, been around for a long time and whose work is very original and inventive and who I've always admired. So yeah, I'm looking forward to, so we're still working even though we're not publishing as much as we used to. I mean, there was a time in the past where we published 17 titles in a year. 
as I've gotten older, uh, I am not comfortable doing that frenetic pace anymore. I, I think I can, I want to do fewer titles per year and then spend more time with each title, both in the uh, production and in the uh, promotion after the fact. And then um, really, that's another way I've, uh, uh, I think I've learned and evolved uh, since doing the publishing is that I, I'm more, I used to try to just pump out, you know, the books and thinking, you know, you know, they were all great books, but I was producing them fast and furious. And, uh, you know, I look back on them now and I'm like, ah, I could have changed that, made that design element look a little bit better. I could have, you know, I could have done better. So uh, if I had spent more time. And so I'm going to be more patient and, and we'll keep going. But maybe only like four titles a year. That's good. And when, do you think, to what extent do you think, and I think this is a question that a lot of listeners might be interested in, to what extent do you think that uh, you or perhaps other small presses uh, consider a writer's potential outreach when selecting their titles? Is it all, is it, is it a hundred percent about the writing quality or, you know, is it, you know, this person's connected to the community, you know, they have a big social media following, you know, that they're like real ham about like getting to the open mic nights. Like how, how does that, how does that personal outreach affect that decision? Well, that is, uh, that's kind of a, a loaded question, I think, to ask a, a publisher. <laughs> I asked it anyway. <laughs> I, I feel like I could get in trouble no matter how I answer. But, the, but the, no, the, <laughs> I, the truth is, when I was newer to publishing and churning out a lot more books and I was a lot more, dare I say, idealistic. I wanted the best. I took pride in publishing the best work and I think we still do, um, but I didn't care if the person had no friends, if the person did no readings, if they, I was like, you know, this is all pure. This is great work, I don't care. You know, I'm not thinking about money. I'm not thinking about anything except putting out this great work. Sure. Later, uh, about halfway through my tenure in Crisis Chronicles Press, I started thinking, you know, I'm losing a lot of money doing this. Um, maybe if I'm more conscientious on the business side of things, um, I can make this more sustainable. Maybe not profitable, but at least, you know, uh, justify, be able to justify to my wife that, well, why I'm spending all this money and time on, on this, because she doesn't, you know. So anyway, so then I tried to make it into more of a business. And, uh, and I would sometimes get a very good manuscript and not take it because I thought, you know, I'm going to spend more and I'm never not going to recoup my expenses because this person won't sell you know I still was very selective and published great books but I didn't take every great book that crossed my desk like I did in the beginning yeah um, 
And so after a few years of really trying to make it, you know, more sustainable and pay for itself, I realized that that was kind of another form of idealism that uh, I, you know, was kind of unrealistic. It wasn't going to happen. And I was still going to lose some money. And so I should just publish the things I enjoy publishing um, and treat it like in any other hobby. You know, if, if I love collecting poetry books. I don't care that I spend more on books than I make selling books. I, I enjoy it. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't uh, be too concerned that I'm spending too much money on publishing and not making the money back because uh, I should just do it because I enjoy it. And, uh, and partly that, that, that third perspective came from a position of privilege, I guess, because money isn't as tight for me. I mean, it's still not plentiful, but you know, as I've gotten older, you know, things aren't as tight. So I don't have to worry about the financial part of it. I can spend a little bit and, and enjoy the, but I can't do 17 books a year because then that would put me in the poorhouse. So that's part of why I'm going down to four. I can still publish things that I love, whether or not they're going to sell and not break the bank uh, doing it. If I, if I moderate uh, the amount of projects I take on and the amount of books I accept. Sure. I mean, if you're, you're publishing seven, 17 books a year, is a lot. And, and, if you're publishing that many and you whittle it down to you know 25%, now you have a lot of leeway to have, you have a lot of room for other decisions that you can make. Yeah. All right, that's cool. Um, so let, let's turn to, cause you're the, the Beat Poet Laureate of Ohio through this year. You were uh, nominated in 2019. And yes. um, it went through, I imagine that was very challenging during COVID. Um, so, you know, let me ask, uh, how, what kind of what goals did you have for your tenure? And, you know, did you meet those goals and what challenges did you see? Well, um, so uh, it was a real honor to be selected um, as the Beat Poet Laureate by the National Beat Poetry Foundation. Um, and I, I was kind of shocked and amazed that I was selected. I mean, uh, because there are so many worthy candidates in Ohio. I mean, uh, like you had Ray McNeese on one of your previous podcast episodes. He would be a, a, a fantastic uh, Beat Poet Laureate, uh, Diane Borsenek. Uh, I, I could just give you a whole list of people who, who are amazing. So it's, it, it's been a great honor. And it kind of took me by surprise. When I became the Beat Poet Lord, it was September of 2019 through September of this year. And at the time I was in the middle of a huge tour. I had just had a new book out um, that you mentioned earlier, Rattled and Numb from Venetian Spider Press. So I was like, okay, once this tour is over, I'm going to switch gears into doing my, my beat stuff. And I had planned, I'd started doing a lot more reading of, I mean, I, I've been influenced by and loved and read a lot of beat poets 
over the course of my life, but I felt like there were some gaps that I needed to fill. Uh, and so I started reading a ton of books by, like, for example, everybody knows William S. Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, but there were several women who were members of the Beat Generation and fantastic poets who don't get the same publicity. There were African-American people, you know, like uh, Bob Coffin, fantastic Beat poet, Rus Russell Atkins from here in uh, Cleveland, who I would consider Beat, uh, and they didn't get the same publicity. So my plan was to do a series of workshops uh, across the state of Ohio in all 88 counties on the unknown beats, you know, the, the, the beats you don't hear about, Ann Waldman, Diane De Prima. I mean, unless you're really a big poetry fan, you know, people know who they are, but uh, the general public doesn't really know who they are and they deserve some recognition. So I was gonna do this series of workshops talking about their history, their work, their influences, who they influenced. And then, so I spent that winter of 2019-20 doing all the research, doing all the, you know, putting all the programs together. And then in March, the pandemic struck and all the events had to be put on hold. And I did end up doing a few online through Zoom but I didn't really get to fulfill uh, what I had hoped to do. So uh, I'm thinking maybe next year um, when everything, the coast is clear again, I will do something of that sort again, even though I will no longer be the Beat Poet Laureate. <laughs> well, you can call it as you know, a holdover from your, from your tenure. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that's pretty ambitious over a two year period. If you're doing all 88 counties, that's one workshop every eight days. That's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> well, but I've always wanted to, to visit all 88 counties. I've probably visited maybe 30 of them. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of been on my want to do list uh, for a long time, just to visit the counties. And so this gave me an, a reason, it, uh, a convenient excuse to visit all the counties also and it to be part of my project you know wearing raising awareness uh yeah that's that's a tremendous do something of that sort yeah I, i'm envious of that of that initiative that ambition that's that's great <laughs> let me keep me in keep me in the loop let me know how that goes because i'd be interested to hear more about that <laughs> i will thank you um so do you think that beat is a skill that you, like, do you practice beat? Like, do you, is it something that you work on when you're not at a mic or do you, do you feel like you have a natural inclination to it or are you just drawn to it or you just go for it and just do it? You've done a lot of performances. I, I, I looked up the list of performances that you've done since 2008 and it is extensive. <laughs> I'm, I'm still kind of, that's a hard question to answer. One, I my definition of beat is constantly evolving. I it's very it's be, it's become more and more expansive as the years have gone on. Uh, now I'm kind of feeling like it it is kind of na naturally coming out of me um, because it's. 
beat is what's natural to anybody, you know? I mean, uh, following your, expressing yourself and following your own internal rhythm or doing it in conjunction with another rhythm, you know, maybe music or, you know, somebody whose work you love. It, it's all a natural vibration expression. I, it's, I don't want to get mystical about it, uh, but it's, I feel like whatever a person shares from the heart without inhibition, being conscious of some sort of rhythm, that is beat to me. And so it, that's, that's a, a label that can encompass a whole lot of things, you know, just like Ginsburg was a totally different writer from Burroughs and from Kerouac, you know, they were three totally different writers, but they were all em embodied this essence, this, uh, this spirit, this joie de vivre, that, you know, living life, expressing it uh, to the best of their ability, uh, not, not always uh, being the most successfully textbook successful poets or poems, you know what I mean? I mean, not everybody's taste, but, but just expressing themselves genuinely without restriction, with, with love and joy. And sometimes, you know, when the situation calls for it, outrage and just being real. And it's a journey. I feel like for me, it's still a journey. I, I'm still evolving. I'm still trying to, for my poetry to become more and more natural, uh, to become more and more real, to become more and more honest, you know, there were things that I'd write, you know, 15 years ago that I felt were honest and real. And then now I look back at them and I'm like, you know, I didn't go deep enough. I, I, I was inhibited. I was, you know, you know whatever. Uh, so it's, it's a constant, I don't know if that really answers your question, but for me, beat is an ever evolving thing that just kind of, emerges spontaneously from you, which is not to say you don't have to revise, you know, first thought isn't always best thought and uh, which I, I've learned, uh, but, but keep doing it. And it's also partly what all you've brought into yourself, you know, um, I, I'm a combination as much as you wanna think, oh, I'm original, I wanna be original, I wanna be like nobody else really everybody is to some degree a an combination an amalgam i don't know what the word for it is that uh, of everything that it, they've ever taken in good or bad you know your your upbringing uh church which is a big part of my childhood uh, even though now i'm not religious um music that i've listened to over the years and it's just tapping into all of that and kind of making it part of your own expression. Uh, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. You know, I, I, had a, I had a friend who's a musician and he, he once told me that everybody has their own music. Everybody has their own way I think so. they operate at, you know? 
and it sounds that's similar to what you're saying is that like if you're tapping into what is you that's authenticity it's it's your you, you know you had said internal rhythm i love i love that phrase that it's it's not so much about having the greatest wordplay or being as clever as you possibly can but tapping right. into the mode that you operate on and writing around that instead and that's the direction i'm trying that's the direction i'm going in you know uh uh, I used to want to try to impress people, you know, whether with, you know, the wordplay or the, the performance or, you know, uh, I wanted to put on a good show. Um, and, and there's a place for that. I mean, definitely, you know, but uh, on the other hand, authenticity uh, was always a challenge, you know, um, from when I was young to, you know, not being able to, feeling comfortable around other people, being bullied in school, you know, all sorts of things made me very inhibited. And so I would be honest, I would feel like I was being authentic when I would share something, but I would only go so far. I would only, and so now I'm really trying to just be wide open. I'm trying, to, the next book I'm working on, I'm really trying to be wide open and vulnerable and expose myself, you know, in, in I mean, not in a dirty way, but, you know, you know. <laughs> I got you. I, I know what you mean. <laughs> not something that's going to get you, you know, a second over by a cop or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we're, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you one last question, because I think, you know, I, there's a lot of a lot of newer writers, I feel kind of, you know, they, they want to be authentic and they're like, well, this is true to me, but uh, they want to circumvent technique. You know, they, they, they're, they, they don't want to go through the discipline of learning craft because right. they think, well, this is true to me, but what, what, you know, that, that, that they lose the qual the, the writing quality in the process. So let me ask you, do you think, there are certain techniques that are better at tapping into that than others. Do you think that uh, some elements of craft can uh, mitigate authenticity? Do you think, or if you want to answer it this way, do you think that craft, um, how, how should you approach craft in order to be authentic later? Well, I was one of those young people that you're talking about. Uh, when I was young, I would just write, 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 ex you know, the whole first thought, best thought thing that Ginsburg or, you know, said, or, you know, thinking that was genuine. I'm just putting myself out there, you know, no filter. Yeah. <laughs> tweeting or something. I don't know. But, uh, and thought that was good poetry. And, you know, now I look back on stuff I wrote when I was 18, 19, hell, even when I was 30. And, uh, you know, I'm like, oh my God, that's so embarrassing. I mean, that's just drivel. That's not like vomit. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good to look at as a snapshot of where I was, you know, when I'm writing my memoir, it's, it's good to have that because it helps me refresh my memory, but it's really crap. It's not really great poetry. And it's not really deep or, you know, anything I thought it was at the time. Um, and that was before I 
came to appreciate craft. Uh, I didn't end up going to uh, college for English. I went to uh, OU, Ohio University, in the 90s. And I had graduated high school in 84. But I wasn't, you know, taking literature classes and, and poetry, creative writing until in the late 90s. And I didn't get involved in like poetry workshops uh, until, you know, the 2000s. Um, but both doing those things and also becoming much more well-read, reading a lot of other people's poetry. Uh, over the years, I grew to appreciate craft a whole lot better. And, um, you know, not everything you say, sure, what you say has value and it's meaningful to you. And, you know, it's, but, but it's not necessarily a great poem if, you know, you, if you're just, you know, regurgitating something, uh, at least not for me. Mine was crap. Sometimes I hear new young poets and I'm like, especially nowadays around Cleveland, we have some really good ones who are really good at craft too. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, thanks to organizations around Cleveland, 12 Literary Arts, uh, Lake Erie Inc. There's a lot of support for teenage and, and young adult poets in the area, uh, helping them uh, with craft. Uh, Literary Cleveland does some uh, workshops in that vein. I didn't have that, or I just didn't know that those things were going on when I was young, so I didn't uh, take advantage of them. Um, ultimately, the, the most important thing that teach me the importance of craft was reading a lot of other poets. A lot of, even if maybe it wasn't the type of poetry I liked or the theme I liked or the subject, I started reading every person who was regarded as a great poet. You know, I started reading uh, the Poets Laureate. I started reading, you know, everyone from, you can, well, anyone uh, who, who was well-regarded in the poetry world and like, why is this person well-regarded? What is it that make, made people love Robert Frost? What made people love Charles Simic, you know, Kay Ryan? And, you know, and then by a kind of, you know, I kind of learned by observation, not, not by imitating, because I don't write like them, but, you know, somehow it made me appreciate good editing, good revising, not just putting something out there because it feels like what you want to say, but actually spending some time with it uh, and workshopping it, perhaps. Uh, uh, but workshops can be a uh, you know a double-edged sword too, but we don't have time to get into that. But uh... <laughs> oh, can they? That's that's one thing I know well. <laughs> All right. Well, could you would you mind reading a poem before we sign off here? I will happily. And thank you again for having me. I, I hopefully I haven't been too long-winded. Uh, but I, I you get me talking and. Uh, that's just a sign I'm comfortable with you because um, I'm usually not that, not that talkative with people I'm not comfortable with. Well, I'll t I take that as a tremendous compliment. Thank you. <laughs> uh, this poem was um, after David Berman, 1967 to 2019. He was a poet and uh, the front man for the group, the Silver Jews, the musician uh, who and for a group called Purple Mountains, and he committed suicide in uh, the summer of 2019. Random Rules. 
There is nothing worse or better than Purple Mountain's majesty or a Purple Mountain's tragedy. In 1984, I was traumatized by entering the Marine Corps and refusing to serve. It made me servile, temper, lie. Don't let your parents make you value killing over communism. In the Gulag, I wanted to be David Berman when I grew up, though I had not yet heard of him. By the time he shot himself, I had changed my mind. If there is a point to this life, I am still outlining it. Find the patterns, fully embrace multidimensionality, whether or not it is plain to see. Don't let your parents make you value religion over reality. What you thought was a tragedy probably was. You can still find value in it, like religion. Semper Fidelis. In 1984, I fell in love with Purple Rain and Laura Lynn fell out of love with me. Don't let your pastor convince you to break up with your Catholic crush. This poem has nothing and everything to do with its inspiration, like responses to a Rorschach test. Purple robes cannot confer holiness, though art can allude to them, and art is always holy. Imbibe life, hold on, let go, embrace more than one medium. See life as an hallucination, an hallucination with or without drugs. Realize the hallucination is real. In 1984, I was ill or well, depending on who you ask and when. Perhaps I still am. There is no other. Be friends and strangers with yourself simultaneously. American water will make you both. Thank you very much for reading. All right. Well, <clears throat> this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And John, seriously, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I've enjoyed talking with you.